Namaste to all of you and good evening. I'm happy to be with you here tonight. We are drawing closer and closer to the grand finale, to the climax of this um, <clears throat> tragic and magnificent story of the sacrifice of Jesus, of the message of God to the humanity. And we are in the middle of chapter number 20 in the Gospel of Luke. If I remember correctly, there are 24 chapters all in all. So, uh, again, close to the end, Jesus is now presented as being in Jerusalem in the final week. Jesus entered a Sunday in Jerusalem. It's called the Palm Sunday. And then the next Sunday... He was resurrected already. So this Sunday, these seven days, are the most intense days of all his ministry. And he already went to the temple. That was the main thing. He was not interested in courtesy visits of any other kind. He was going to the temple to teach the emissary of God, the one that some call the future king of the Jews, the one that some people call the Messiah, the one that some people call the Son of God. He was in town and he was to the temple because his main duty was to be a spiritual teacher, a guide, a divine model. And uh, he gave some very bad answers, some very backhand answers to the hypocrites from the place, to the great priests, scribes, and others. And um, now we continue from the paragraph number 20, where the story continues. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. Like now they knew. If we talk to Jesus, Jesus is giving us the backhand. He doesn't like us. He considers us liars, hypocrites. The, the terms of the deal are clear. But you see, they were very smart people because then they would simply say, we have to make the people choose between us and Jesus. And there was a very big chance that people will be charmed by Jesus. And then they had to find devious ways of doing things. That's exactly the way the devil acts with spies, with such things. It's not a coincidence that this environment of espionage and information communities and so on is very demonic, very diabolic in all the countries. And thus, he, now they are acting in the devious way, which is, um, send, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. Remember, they were not. They pretended. So all they say is fabrication and lie from the very beginning. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So they wanted the Romans to get involved because the Romans had the heavy hand and they wanted to, uh, to have the blood drawn 
by the Romans, which they actually managed eventually. The Romans were unwitting stooges in this conflict. Of course, they wanted to avoid trouble in their provinces, but for them, one more prophet or one less prophet didn't mean much. This situation had been manipulated. Now, in the, in the law, one of the questions in the law is qui protest? To whom is it useful? Who gains from it? The Romans didn't really stand to gain by crucifying Jesus because Jesus did nothing against the Romans all his life. No, He did through his disciples in the meaning that the apostles later, they simply claimed that the Roman emperor was not of divine origin, was just an ordinary man, usually ordinary men with schizophrenia and megalomania and paranoia and other mental diseases. No, and that way, but Jesus himself never did this in a direct way. He did not attack, and therefore, qui protest answers very quickly. It was useful to the Jewish religious authorities who felt that they were losing ground quickly before this extraordinary man. So the spies questioned him. They asked him questions like, what did it have? Jesus said, forgive your enemies, love, go in the heart, practice this, do that. He had hundreds of teachings about spiritual life. Now what do the spies have to ask? Like, Why is that question relevant? The spies say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. Bullshit. They didn't know. They believed that he was an enemy of the people. No? So saying that the teacher, we know that you always teach what is right. This is just buttering his hole. This is brown nosing. You know, he's kissing the ass of Jesus with the hope that he falls for it. You know, it's just the talking to Jesus, nice thinking that he will get cheated by polite language because you are asking him in a, in a way which pretends to be uh, like, oh, we acknowledge you. We know that you are a great man who always tell the truth. Nonsense. They didn't. They were liars from the minute number one. <clears throat> and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's how it was. But they didn't believe that it was so. They believed that this man was a pain in the neck and that he had to be eliminated. And now they are trying to eliminate him by catching him do politically incorrect statements. Statements which are addressable by the Roman law. Thinking that the guy was not smart enough to see that or to act in accordance to the basic knowledge. So he said, you know that you speak about the truth. Now comes the question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to the Caesar or not? No. They obviously, they expected that Jesus would be patriotic. And he would say, no, the Romans are a pestilence. They are illegally here. Why should we pay them taxes? And then they would go to the procurator and say, look, look, that man is preaching to the crowds that we shouldn't pay taxes to you. And then Jesus would get the heavy fist of the Roman Empire over his, over his head. No? 
But like, should we pay taxes? Remember that the Jews had a good Manipura in that time as well. Um, as today, they still have a quite good Manipura. And they were very irritated by the fact that the Romans were on top of them. There was no way Israel could escape from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire being the biggest military machine of its time. The Roman Empire was crushing nations over thousands of kilometers around Rome. There was no way Israel could do anything military about it. So all the time they were trying to undermine it, to work in the not fair way, not like come and chest to chest, let's see who is the strongest. No, there they had lost. In the same way, they had lost with Jesus in the battle of words. Because in the synagogue, in the temple, Jesus trashed them. And then now they are trying the war of deviousness, the war of espionage, of betrayal, the underground war where a man can make as much damage as a million of the soldiers of the enemy. This kind of war is a dirty Svadistana. This is the crocodile makara in the analysis of the chakras of yoga. It's the, the hell on Svadhisthana. It is the, the perverted, secret, devious way of doing things. And thus, they ask him a question which is super dangerous. Jesus could have simply said, man, fuck off. Why do you ask me such questions? I'm not the king. I'm not an economist. I am not a military strategist and I did not come to this earth to bring you independence, military independence or something. I am not a revolutionary. Pay your fucking taxes or don't pay your taxes, whichever you want, and undergo the consequences of your choice. That's you. I came here to teach you about making peace with God. Because God wants a new covenant. God is stretching a hand out towards you. To shake your hand, to make peace with you. No? And thus, uh, he could have avoided the question. But on the other hand, you see that Jesus acknowledges that potentially he is the king. He is like, he can be asked about financial matters as well. Because he represents God. And everything comes under the jurisdiction of God. Like, yes, you can ask God, should we pay taxes or not? No, because he will not say, hey, I'm just spiritual here. I don't deal with administrative issues. He is going full on into it. And that's why he will have to answer. He wants to answer because he wants to be all and everything. He just entered a couple of days before on a donkey with people throwing their clothes on the ground so that his donkey was stepping over their robes, over their clothes. So he made an imperial entry in Jerusalem and he's basically showing them God has come to this city. And if it's God, then you ask God, but what do we do about the taxes? No. Of course, this is a question which touches so many things. If you would judge this situation in 2,000 years ago, you could say, why don't you guys put all the Roman money there and then you guys barter with each other. Invent a new currency. 
do something, do natural barter, simply bypass the Roman currency, they will be very pissed. But you don't use their, their currency, stays as a pile on your table, and you don't touch it. You don't buy, you don't sell, you don't trade, nothing. No. And when they come, they can take their currency and that's all. No. And you don't have, you bypass, you make a parallel system, which they will object, they might beat you, torture you, they might do nasty things, but you don't, you stay out of their financial system. Exactly as Mahatma Gandhi, he preached social non-collaboration. Like, he simply, there is a special name, but I don't remember it now, this social non-cooperation, there is a name again which is classical from the time of Gandhi, no, and simply said, if we, the Indians, sit like this and look at the British, for the next 20 years, what will they do? Like, we simply don't work for them or with them. We don't buy any of their products. We don't do anything. We just sit and eat from the bottom of our pocket, whatever. We will starve. Maybe may, many will die, but we simply don't mock in. It's not possible for 30,000 people to rule 500 million people. That's not possible. It's possible only because we cooperate. So Jesus would, could have said the same thing. Guys, stop cooperating. Non-cooperation, you know. Like simply behave as if the Romans are ghosts. Sometimes this ghost will put a sword in you and the 150 people of you will die. But if you can clench your teeth and set your jaw and resist to those 150 people dying, and for the rest, non-cooperation. You behave as if they don't exist. You don't talk to them. You don't turn your head in the direction of them. You behave as if they are ghosts from another world. If they ask you a question, you don't answer. Again, a hundred of you will get martyrized for this. Then they will just pack their gear and go. Because you cannot run. They run the country because some people are mocking in. Because some people are doing their job. They are traitors, collaborators. So if nobody collaborates... no. So Jesus could have found a lot of ways to say, which when we look back at the history of the world, we know that they have been done and they were there. But Jesus has one talent which very few people had. He is in direct inspiration by God. He sees things exactly in the same way in which God sees those things. The inspiration flows through him perfectly. I told you last time that that's why they could never defeat him in debate. In debate, Jesus never lost a single debate, big or small. He was totally invincible because he had access to the word of Shiva. He had access to the word of God. He was directly connected with the divine consciousness. And then you cannot beat God because God will always see more, understand more, have the global view. A man with the Ajna of Jesus the Christ cannot, and the Sahasrara not to mention, cannot be beaten in debate. It's like, you know, his words reflect the truth. Some gurus can be, because they were yesterday in a state of samadhi, today they are stressed out and tired, you know, they maybe not have their best day of talking about these things. 
But Jesus was connected 100% all the time, 24-7. And therefore, there was no way of beating Jesus, because beating Jesus in debate would be like defeating God in debate. That's simply not possible, because God has all the mind, all the intelligence, all the knowledge, all the conscience, all the consciousness. And thus, Jesus was like brilliant, genius in this. In India, as I told you at that time, they even had this, that if two major gurus argued, debated with each other, if one of them categorically defeated the other one, the second one had to become the disciple of the first one. Like, hey, you've still got to learn a lot. No? Because, so debate was a very serious matter which showed if you are in connection with the truth. Also, in many tantric texts, when they speak about effects of people who open their high chakras and they have a state of divine inspiration, it's like this gives, when the gifts are listed, it's like this gives the list of oratorics, of oratory, and the gift of poetry. Like a sort of a wonderful use of the word. Like being with the word, like the three musketeers, you know, the most skillful person in the place. No? Like your tongue is like the sword of D'Artagnan, you know, it's like it's invincible. Your, your sword can carry the message of the divine. So, therefore, Jesus was never afraid of these debates or something. And they asked him a phony question. By, but by kissing his ass and saying, we know how great you are, just tell us this one. Should we pay taxes? Which is a super dangerous question, which was making him head up the purpose to take him in the danger zone. Because if he said yes, then the regular Jews will be, see, he has on the side of the Romans. He is one of the people who is sucking our blood. The Jewish nation has been known all over history, sometimes more ironically, sometimes more in a straightforward way, for its love for the money, for its tight-handedness about the money. No, it's, there are hundreds of jokes about how the Jews are super skillful with the money, but at the same time, so for the Jews, this bleeding of money to the Roman Empire was very painful. No, and then Jesus comes and says, pay the bloody money, you know, like... Then they would say, this man is our enemy. See, this is why we are poor. That's why our children have no food. Because people like Jesus say, give the money to the Romans. No? And if he said, don't pay the money, then he would get the Roman hammer fall over his head. So it's a very diabolic question. These people had many ugly questions. You'll see others are coming. He saw through their duplicity. How shouldn't he? Because he knew. And said to them, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. And they were using the Roman money, which as I said earlier, it was a mistake. Because they could have just bartered eggs for apples. You know, and then they didn't have to pay anything. But they were using it out of laziness. Because nobody could oblige them to use them. They put them on the table and didn't touch them for one year. No, then it's not used. But they used them. So it was a sort of a duplicity there. 
And he says, show me this money, you know, whose portrait, and you are using money printed, minted by the Roman emperor. Like, how stupid can you be? You are using his money, which he manufactured with his own factories. And now you don't want to give him back the rights for it? No? I like how, you know, he basically told them, why don't you have a currency, a secret currency of your own? Why don't you live a life of your own? No? And so he asked them, whose portrait and inscription are on Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to the Caesar's what is, the C- what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Only a man connected to the divine in the spur of the moment could give such an answer. No? Such a... Give to the Caesar's. This money is printed by this guy. Give him his fucking money back. Let him stuck them up his ass. You know, what will he do with it? Let him give his pieces of metal back. No? Give him all. Drop it. Everybody should come on the Passover now in the public plaza and dump all their denarii there and never touch them again. Then what will the Romans do? They will go in rage. They will start running in circles. No, because the money was the reason for which the Roman Empire was conquering all the nations of the world. To get tribute from them. To get tax revenue from them. No? And if the revenue is not coming, then it's useless. What do you do? You kill them all. What to do? You, know, you wipe them off the face of the earth. You know? But Jesus probably thinks it's preferable to die with a vertical spine rather than playing this ambiguous game in which you pretend you are a patriot, but actually the priests and the local king and everybody, they were full of those denarii. Now they are catching Jesus that he should say you shouldn't pay them. But they, the people who are asking the question, they had their pockets full of the same very denarii. No? So that's the hypocrisy. No, these were not straight people who were real patriots, who were ready to say, you know, we're ready to die for this. They actually wanted their privileges and they were ready to sell their own country. Jesus was the real patriot in this Because Jesus told them, you know, this belongs to Caesar. Give them back to Caesar. You have dollars in your country, like US dollars. Who's on it? The Federal Bank of America. Give them. Take all the dollars. Take all the foreign currency. Give it. Have your own currency. Have Make another currency of your own or something. Use another system. Like I understood that there are islands in England where they don't even use the pound. They have a currency which is made there. You know, a local currency. Which is not legal. And the police and the government is very angry at it, but they cannot stop it. There is no way of stopping it, really. So therefore, I'm simply telling you, then he, this, this is a famous sentence. It's one of the 10 or 20 top famous answers of Jesus. If people remember sayings, words of Jesus, this is one of them. The answer, give to the Caesar what belongs to the Caesar. What is Caesar's? And to God, what is to What does God want? God wants your love, your devotion, your attention, your spiritual practice, your obedience to the moral and ethical laws that he has dictated. So give to God what is God's, which means your soul, your attention, your energy, 
you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. No? And give to the Caesar what is the Caesar's. Let the Caesar have his money. No? The Caesar in that time was, I don't even know, Augustus, Tiberius, whatever. One of the schizophrenic, pathetic emperors who long, not long time after that even passed away. They were unable to trap him in what he has said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. One, they did not manage to catch him. He gave an absolutely exemplary and balanced answer to this. Two, he preached detachment. Like, give to the Caesar what is the Caesar's. Three, he was preaching underground and alternative ways of dealing with a currency which people if they would have had, but they didn't want because the people who are in charge they had their pockets lined with a denarii so why should they want something else when they were making a fortune out of it no they didn't want something else and also it says astonished by his answer they became silent like you would think that some of them would have the cheek to go on. Let's find another one to catch him. But you know, human beings have a soul. Human beings have a spirit. And this spirit is making us see the truth. When somebody is taking a truth, like Jesus told them, you can throw a stone to kill this woman only if you have no sins yourself. Otherwise, how do you have the cheek to come and take a stone and stone to death this woman when you yourself are riddled with all sorts of miseries and so on? And people could feel it because he spoke from God. He spoke with the voice of God. And then people were like petrified. And that woman got away with it because nobody dared to take a stone and throw at her. Not because Jesus was keeping a gun at their heads, but because the conscience, the consciousness, they, they, it was painfully activated, and it was like, uh, oh my God, you know? Even if among them there were people who in the daily life they had no conscience, now for five minutes they had an increased degree of consciousness and conscience and responsibility accountability. No? The same was here. When Jesus told them this, even the spies shut up like they were a bit ashamed. They were a bit like, oh, you know. Like every time when he was giving it back to them, it was so beautiful, so decisive. You know? This power of the word of Jesus to give. Oh, the same word by which he said, Take your bed and go home. You are healed. Your sins are forgiven. You know, it's the same word. It's the same Siddhi on Vishuddha. And this Siddhi on Vishuddha chakra is telling to them, then if this money is, sign is inscripted by the Caesar, give to the Caesar what belongs to the Caesar. Like you mind your own business. And of course, don't forget to give to God what belongs to God. Your problem is not the Caesar. Your problem is God. No? And you are not giving to God what you are supposed to give to God, which means your life, your soul. No? 
and you are asking me about the money, that's the best question you could come up with. And it's a tricky question to catch me, you know, with it. Like, Jesus was a total genius from this standpoint. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, this is, I'm not aware of all the Jewish sects of all the time, these Sadducees were a sect, part of the <coughs> that time's spectrum, and they preach something in which there will be no resurrection. You die, you go to God. God knows exactly what was their doctrines. I've never studied. They came to Jesus with a question. And it's another tricky question, because as you are going to see, they invented a situation which is not even one in a million. I don't think it happened ever since the birth of humanity, this actual situation. So it's an, a ridiculous situation. But they made it on purpose because they wanted again to catch him. Maybe not to catch him and throw to the lions, throw him to the Romans, but they still wanted to catch him. People were trying him. Like, is this guy really good? Is this guy really... To? Because they knew that, you know, you cannot argue with God. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, they take it on the authority of Moses, the first... Uh, the mosaic root, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. It's one of the weird laws in which the Jewish community was very tight because they were persecuted from all sides and they were trying to kind of stay in their coop. Don't mix with the Egyptians, don't mix with the Gentiles of different kinds like the Phoenicians or the Babylonians or others. And like, you know, if a woman is suddenly a widow, what if she gets married to a Roman and starts making Roman babies with that Roman soldier? No, the brother should take her immediately and marry her and make children for his brother. His brother is gone in the astral world. He doesn't give a shit if his wife will have children with a Roman, with a Vietnamese, or with his brother. Makes no difference once you are gone out of the physical body. No, only if somebody is extremely egoistic and full of desires, and he has some spiritual power, and after he does the bardo, he's there in the astral body, and he's looking down, and he's saying, look, look, my wife, and he's fucking with uh, that imbecile, and it's like, it, it makes my boil, my blood boil, this doesn't exist, like, if there is a soul which thinks like that, that soul is burning in hell already. It's the soul of a person tortured by very painful, inferior and intense desires. No, So it doesn't even happen. So even Moses, when he said, let the widow have children for his brother, that's fake. That's white lies. No, because how are you going to have children for your brother? But aren't they yours? It's a sort of social policy. Let uh, the brother keep the sister in the team here, in the family, in the group, in the tribe, and have her, and so the children will belong not necessarily to his brother, but they will belong to our little Jewish community here. And in this way, we keep the population growing, 
and we don't mingle with other nations and all that. It's a, it's, we could almost call it a nationalistic demographic policy. No, it really doesn't do any good to the brother, believe me. The brother doesn't get anything from the fact that he's... Not to mention that the brother could be an asshole. Not to mention that the brother could have syphilis. Not to mention that the brother could have hated his other brother and said, I'm lucky that this Oscar died, you know, because he was an asshole and now I get to fuck his wife and everybody will say that I'm doing an act of generosity for doing his children. No, I'm going to dance on his grave in the night. You know, I'm going to go to his grave and dance a jig, you know. Like, this situation, this law itself is a ridiculous approximation of what needs to be done and of the law. But it's a law. Moses, at least, he considered that action is superior to inaction. It's better to have some rules and a religion and a code of behavior than to let people completely out of it and without a code and without rules. And it was true because the Jewish religion did keep itself through such rules and regulations and it was still strong 2,000 years ago and it is still strong today, 2,000 years later. Although they had this squabble with the Messiah who came and many of them did not recognize, and of course they say it was not the Messiah. Okay, you can have arguments about that as much as you want. I am a yogi and I'm outside of the Christian-Jewish argument if Jesus was the Messiah and the Jews missed him, or the Jew, Jesus was not the Messiah and the Christians fakely thought he was just a minor prophet of some sort and the Christians are just worshipping a minor Jewish prophet who was not anything big deal that's up to them to find out I as a yogi I'm thinking about things in another way and as you can see the Jewish religion with the Messiah or without the Messiah is still strong today no? and therefore this cohesion this solidarity this thing like stay together stick together we have been attacked, we have been persecuted, back to back we defend each other, never again, on all these Zionistic uh, uh, long mottos and so on, they have worked on a strictly social, political, religious way, they did work they kept the people together not diluting them like where are the Phoenicians, where is the Phoenician religion, the worshippers of Astarte where were the Babylonians? They are all spread in the place where the Phoenician lives, lived. Now they are Lebanese. It's Lebanon and Syria. And we have Muslims, Catholics and others. Syrian Maronites and others. Like none of the religions which competed with the Jews here survived. They all died. They became either Christianity or Islam or they stayed Jewish. The temperament of the people is of such a nature that only this very clear normed religions, they could keep people aligned to a goal. No? And uh, therefore, the rule from the very beginning is a bit hilarious. But I don't want to speak bad about Moses. Moses did whatever he thought it was best 3,000 years ago or whenever these events, his life happened. Now, say the Sadduceans, we want to give a, to Jesus a smashing test. So now 
There were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. My God, goodness, this woman was the black widow. You know, she was the spider black widow. You know, seven men married her and they died like flies short time after without leaving any child. You know, when did this happen? Like, first of all, this is a totally unrealistic example. It never happened and it never would happen. And if it would happen, it would be one example in 2000 years of history. And then you can simply say, we don't know, there is not a law about this. Jesus, I'm sorry, God will make a special decision about this case. But for the rest of you, mind your own business, you know, because you will never be in such an extreme case that a woman got married seven times to seven brothers, one after another, and with none of them had a child. Because if she had a child with one, then we'd say, okay, now she is marked by the semen of this guy. She is impregnated and she became grafted with his sperm. And now she is bearing his, in the eternity, she is his wife or something like this. No? So, finally, the woman died too. Thank God, because if she got married eight times, it would have been probably a tragedy as well. Now then, at the resurrection, because there is no resurrection, whose wife will she be since she, the seven, were married to her? Like, whoa, it's a swinger club, right? It's polyamory here we're talking about. It's like this woman has multiple relationships. Not at the same time, you know, but when you die, it doesn't matter. Then after death, they are all there. Who gets to, you know, do a... Then you would say, maybe in the astral world it doesn't happen, but there will be resurrection. So when they resurrect, when they come back, who will stick the dick into this one? You know, to whom will her yoni belong? Ridiculous question, but just to ask, just to ask, just to ask, maybe to get a wrong answer, maybe to put him to shame, maybe to, you know. And Jesus didn't say, come on, man, you know, take your question and shove it, you know. It's like, you are ridiculous, you know, like, when you will see this case, bring that woman to me, you know. When you will see such a case, bring that woman to me, I will exorcise her or something. It's no, Jesus in all seriousness answered because he answered to the ridiculousness of their question, mocking it, and at the same time showing their degree of ignorance, showing that such a question can be concocted only by some very limited minds which are full of attachments and full of... So Jesus replied... The people of this age, which means the people living now on earth with me, the people in that year, in that place, marry and are given in marriage. He didn't say it's good or not. He said that's the law of the land. That's what's happening. People marry and are given in marriage. Women are given in marriage and men marry them. Families are arranging the marriages. You know, it was the style from 2000 years ago. No, when Romeo and Juliet were a condemnable example. The families were not agreeing with Romeo and Juliet bumping pelvises. You know, it was a crime for the rest of the two families. <clears throat> so love had no place to 
play, no part to play. It was marriages arranged, people. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Like he says, the people who go to the kingdom of heaven, because he says not in this age. Sometimes they use, Christian mystics also, they use this word that things which belong to this age, which means to Kali Yuga, to the earth environment, and the age to be, which is the kingdom of heaven, which means maybe not on this earth, maybe on a new heaven and a new earth, maybe in another yuga, but definitely it's another age. It's like Satya Yuga. It's something else. It's another earth and another heaven, as the Apostle John defines it in his book of Revelation. So he says, but the people who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, because not everybody goes to that age. Many, many souls are sent back to repeat the class. Like in school, when you don't graduate a class, and you have to do it again. So that is exactly what's happening at the end of Kali Yuga. It is determined who goes to the next Satya Yuga and who will stay here for the next Kali Yuga on the same planet, similar conditions, old souls. Souls that have been around for no, not only 20,000 years or 40,000 years. Souls that have been around for hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of years. Old souls going through the meat grinder many, many times, many, many times. So he says, those who are considered worthy, first of all, you know, you are talking about the ones who go to the other shore, not all the seven brothers and the wife, will all of them go there. But he says, I understand your idealistic question. He doesn't joke about it. I'm mocking the question. But Jesus is taking it seriously. Like, he wants to show that there is no discrepancy in the divine law. That even if Moses gave this law, Moses was friends with God. Moses was with God. Moses was from God. And Moses was inspired and guided by God. And therefore, even when the law sounds, and you find such an extreme example, still, he does not want to dismiss it and to find the variance from that answer. I come on, the case is too extreme, then special rules apply. No! And he says, first of all, it's not everybody is subjected to that judgment. Not everybody is reaching in the same place. But presuming that all eight participants to this drama, they would go there... and worthy to take place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Which means this kind of Svadhisthanistic society in which the family is selling their children to each other and everybody is obsessed with marry, 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 have kids, have kids, have kids, blah, blah, blah. This is a nonsense which for the people who have crossed that line, it's not valid anymore. It's a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't say there will be open relationships, multiple, everybody will love everybody and so on. He doesn't preach because his preaching 
is non-sexual. Whatever Jesus knew about sexuality and the human being, 2,000 years ago when he preached in Israel, combining his own background with his mission, combining it with the religion that the Israelites have had for more than a thousand years at the time when he arrived and combined with other factors, we do not see that Jesus taught any tantric thing. There are some reminiscences in the Coptic Church of Egypt where there are the so-called bedchamber rituals that before having sex, one is doing some consecrations and blessings and prayers, which is very beautiful and I fully agree upon, but not in a tantric way. Not in terms of open relationships, multiple relationships, sexual libertinism or something. The system was still okay at that time as it was. And therefore Jesus just wanted to improve it. And therefore he's not elaborating. He said the people who are worthy to go to the other side, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die because they are like the angels. Of course, not 100% like the angels because the angels have no gender as most of you know already, but like the angels in the meaning that living permanently in the astral world, they don't die, they are not born, they are liberated from the physical world, and they live in the higher realms of the universe, from there moving only higher and higher and higher. So Jesus doesn't really say what they do. Once every three months, they get some blowjobs, and that keeps them happy. He doesn't say, he doesn't go into details. He simply tells them, that's another world with other rules. You are overstretching trying to understand what's happening at that level. And therefore, uh, he's putting them down in a gentle way. They are God's children, since they are the children of the resurrection. So basically Jesus intimates by saying that people who have become liberated from incarnating in the physical world, they are in a different category. They are humanity version 2.0. You know, it's another story. Maybe happens on another planet, in another galaxy. Maybe it doesn't happen in the physical world. It's another. Those people have promoted to another grade of school and therefore, for them, other rules apply. But in the account of the bush, the Moses who saw the burning bush as God and he spoke with God to God, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Like Moses invokes three proeminent patriarchs before him and he says you are the God but why would God be the God of Abraham if Abraham had been dead for a thousand years that means that Abraham still exists somewhere because he invokes him he says who am I you are the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob which means Abraham and whoever Isaac and Jacob, they exist. He invokes them by the name. They are not dissolved in the nothingness. 
And therefore, through this, Jesus says, Moses, first of all, calling God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, shows that there are people who survive after life, and they are eternalized, they become eternal children of God, and therefore he invokes them. He says, you are the God of Abraham. Like the question is, who the fuck is Abraham? Where is he now? But Abraham is there. He can bear witness. Abraham exists. He is a living consciousness. And therefore, in a very subtle way, he says the people who have reached this grade, they are with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and they live in an eternal life. This is the level which Paramahamsa Yogananda describes when says there are people who don't need to incarnate on earth anymore and they become permanent citizens of the astral world. Not that their evolution is finished in the astral world because they are from the astral world they can still go to the causal world and other high realms. But they are eternal children of God because they live there and they are there for hundreds of years, they are there for thousands of years, they are there for millions of years if necessary and thus they are like the angels. They populate the invisible spheres, the astral world, mental world and others. So he said, even Moses showed that the dead rise. He is not the God of the dead but of the living, for to him all are alive. Here Jesus is demonstrating in a logical way by just taking facts and the words of Moses that there is life after death, that there is eternal life, that there is a survival of the soul after death. Because he says, for God, all are alive, not for you. You say, oh, my grandmother is dead, poor Herbert. For God, she is totally alive. Only you don't see her, because you don't know where she is. No? And therefore, for God, as well as for Moses, who saw it, he says, this is the God of Isaac. This is the God of Abraham. You know, like they are there. It's very important to realize, because here Jesus is turning it into a very fine demonstration of immortality and he says that this sect who believe that there is no resurrection they don't believe in eternal life they believe that people once they are dead they are dead and gone no? and this story with a wife who goes to seven brothers it's a nonsense it's, a, you know, it's like is that the problem problem is that people go into an eternal life that's why the Buddhists say when you are born for a thousand lifetimes and in a thousand lifetimes you've had a thousand or maybe eight hundred because maybe there are two of them or three of them at some time. If in a thousand lifetimes you've had five hundred mothers and five hundred brothers and maybe a thousand sisters and a thousand brothers and fathers and so on, then you have had intimate close karmic relationship with three thousand people. Today, you don't know if you know 3,000 people around you. No? Like if you search how many people have I met and at least shake hands and say, Hi, my name is Oscar. What's your name? You know, let's be friends. How many such people do you have in your life? You don't have a 1,000. Only the very, very public people like Jesus probably met more than a 1,000 people. 
in their life. In a normal life, you meet your family, you meet your schoolmates, you feel you meet your colleagues from the job, you feel all in all, you know, it's not so many in the end when you count them. A few hundreds of them, no? And then the Buddhists say, it, what is the probability that if you know a thousand people in this life, all of them have been at least once in the past, your mother, your father, your brother, or your sister. The chance is overwhelmingly big. No? And therefore, it means 90% of the people around you, they are relationships from previous lives. And therefore, Buddha says, you should not hate them, you should not destroy them, because all of them are karmic relationships. And you hate somebody, and it's your mother from 450 lifetimes ago. You want to destroy somebody, and it's your brother from five lifetimes ago. No? And thus, Jesus is bringing a complete opposition to this thing that we people do not survive, souls do not survive, and once dead, they are dead. Ah, oh, yeah, there is God, but that God is a sort of a incapable thing. Like, it doesn't mean anything concrete, but it means something very, very concrete. People are there, you know. And he simply says, the people who reach a clear status there, they are not marrying and they are not being given in marriage. There are other kinds of relationships between the angels, between the immortals, between the ones who are deified or others. He doesn't bother to describe those relationships. But they are something else than this Vadistanistic planet where people are marrying and being given in marriage. You know, where this is the number one obsession, you know, going into relationships, f creating relationships, you know, being dependent so much on this thing. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. That was again, you, you don't, how do you argue with a man like this? Because a man like this is, his mind spawns from heaven to hell, to all the corners of the reality, and he's there present. And like, what, what would you ask? You know, what to ask? Because there is only one question to ask. Some mystics were asked, if Jesus would come now, what would you ask him? If you had one question to Jesus personally, materially, you know, what would you ask? And one said, where have you been in the 18 years which are not in the Bible? No, like, stuff like this. And the one who was the most spiritually developed in that community, an old monk, he said, that's rubbish because it's completely irrelevant for your soul. Where was Jesus for 18 years? Doesn't make any difference. It's just a monk, mental monkey curiosity. The only question which I would ask him is, Lord, what should I do now? Because that's the only thing which matters. If Jesus is coming and you have one question, the question is, tell me what to do now, here. You know, there is no, all the rest is rubbish. This is what matters. So therefore, what to no, but these people, maybe they were not there ready to ask, okay, what to do, because they didn't consider themselves his disciples. But it's like, okay, you shut our mouths. You know, it's like, what can we ask a man like this?
In this way you can see answers which denote a divine type of wisdom. A wisdom which is incomparable. Then Jesus said to them, like now Jesus, it's his time to strike back. Because they provoked him. And um, he would like them to ask him that question which I just mentioned. No? Because that's why he is on earth. He says, I'm on this planet for 33 years. <clears throat> Ask me the question. Ask me the question. You know, like, that's why I'm here. And then Jesus said to them, you know, like, you ask me, you stirred up all this shit with Moses, and you come to me with uh, all the old stuff. And he says, how is it then that they say that the Messiah is the son of David. Because he is supposed to be the Messiah, and they say, oh, son of David, welcome to Jerusalem. Like, they can't see the big picture. For them, this is the, maybe he's a contender to the king. He's the next king. We should go out on the street and ask that the old king should go fuck himself and this should be our king because he's so holy and so religious. You know, He's the son of David. So he says, how is it that these people when they talk about the Messiah slash me, but he doesn't say me. He just simply says, now the subject of the Messiah is boiling in Jerusalem these days. You know, How do they say that the Messiah... Is the son of, you see how fine points he makes where he sees exactly the, 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 the nail in the clockwork, you know, the thing which stops the whole thing, the thing which is the crux of the problem, no, the moot point. He says, how do they say, how does it come that they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Because that's a political thing, you know. David had a son who had a son who had a son. And 30 generations later, after 500 years, we had this guy who is, you know, because apparently Mary, his mother, and the, womb, the family of Mary, I forgot if the mother of Mary or the father of Mary, was on a genetical lineage all the way from David. And it is said in the Jewish folklore that David had red hair, that the hair of David was auburn, which is very rare in the Semitic populations in the Mediterranean. And it is said that Jesus was kind of blondish, reddish. He didn't have the dark hair. He's never described with dark hair, but the Roman historians who spoke about him, they said that he had a very strange shade of hair, which was almost blonde, which was very light. And it's not uncommon in the family of David. It is in the genes, in the genetic line of the King David. So he says, how is it they say that the Messiah, or me, is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes from a psalm, the Psalm 110, which it's where David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David, says Jesus, calls him Lord. The Lord, God, said to my Lord, who is the Messiah. The Lord would promised to the Jewish nation. So the Lord spoke to the Lord, 
No, and he said, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Like he calls their attention on the fact, you know, he doesn't relent on this. No, he says, I could be mother. Okay, you call me the son of David. Sure, I'm glad you acknowledge at least my genetic line. But he says, I'm not just the son of David. By synchronicity, it so happens that my mom bears the blood of King David. But my dad, no, is something else. And therefore, it's like, I am the Lord of David, not the son of the son of the son of David. No, like you are minimizing me by calling me son of David because that's enough for you for genealogy. You know, like genealogically, this guy is in the right family, he has the right blood. You know, but there is much more to it. You know, when David had visions about the Messiah, he said, God told to my Lord, sit here until I destroy your enemies or pacify them or whatever he wanted to do with them. You know, so David says Jesus points clearly, calls that one Lord. How can then be his son? Like Jesus is not pulling back. No, like if things are to be the way they are, Jesus is going the full monte. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, We don't know exactly, it's not always said if he turned back and told them and people could overhear or not. How was it that he had some private moments with his disciples when he was associated with a crowd? How secretive these words were if they are completely separated? We, in the Gospel of Luke, we are given both. We are given what he shouted loud to the world, to the people. And then he says, while all the people were listening... And of course, there was some break or something. Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. These were the big rabbis, the priests of the time. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces. Oh, shalom, rabbi, shalom. You know, like all this, you know, bullshit. Ego, 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 all the time, all the time, you know. They love, you can see it, the image, you can see it, it's like a Hollywood movie. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. This is, you know, this is what it is about, this snobbishness, this ridiculous snobbishness, this protocol, you know. This thing that they are VIPs no? and they have privileges. And people, when they lose these privileges, they commit, they commit suicide. They commit, like, they, it's like losing this for people that have them. Those people, they get 30 years older in five years. You know, in five years, they lose their life. They lose their will to live. They lose, like, psychologically... People live on these social honors enormously much, enormously much, ridiculously much. And when they lose it, oh my God. And with Jesus, they are about to lose it. No? And like they could see it. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Widows' houses, because the widows were the poor. Uh, a sort of a um, 
social category which was very poor, very um, defenseless. And you know, imagine old Israeli women asking to the rabbis, Oh, rabbi, can you please come and bless my house? I feel that there are demons in the night in my house. You know, some postmenopausal women having deliriums and religious superstition and stuff like this, you know. And these birds of prey, the priests, going on it. I can see the same in Christianity. I can see the same in pretty much every religion. You know, that these social categories which are disaffected and weak, the religion is preying upon them while you would think that the religion is supposed to defend them very much. And so he describes a very painful image where you see that it's all a matter of snobbishness and other uh, such things, privileges and exploitation. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Pujas over pujas and lengthy prayers and so on. The Tibetans were complaining about things. The same Indian yogis were complaining about that the Brahmins, to justify their privileges, have invented enormously long rituals, prayers, which only they can remember. Very complicated stuff, you know, just for a show, says Jesus. Like a prayer can be short, like Lazarus, come forth. You know, that's a real short prayer, you know, when he raised Lazarus from his grave. You know, Lazarus, come forth, you know. Why do you need to make a lengthy prayer to make it worse? You know, that's, that shows the, the lack of substance there. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. And then he ends on a very bitter note. He says, such men will be punished most severely. Because he said it often. Those who are given a lot, a lot will be asked of them. These priests, the teachers of the law, as he calls them, the teachers who are teaching the mosaic law, the the Talmudic law and all the things. He says, beware of them. No, They like to walk and be in robes and be respected and they are rabbis and they pray upon widows or God knows, make lengthy prayers and look what Jesus says. It's very alarming. All the rabbis should listen, should read this once a week. All the Christian priests and monks should read this a lot. All the Islamic imams and others, all the Buddhist priests, they should read this. All the people from all the religions, they should read this. Because basically, the religious authority is becoming fake, hypocrite. It's all about money, power, social respectability, being a VIP position, name and fame, as some yogis call Shivananda called it name and fame. No? Ramakrishna as well used a similar syntax. No? And Jesus says something terrible. No? Either he is subjective and he's got something against these people because they are his direct competition, or he knows something which normal people don't know. He says it very clearly. Such men 
will be punished most severely. Not the murderers, not the hookers, not the tax collectors, not others. Such men will be punished most severely. Because when you are given such a thing in life, then you are supposed to carry the word of God to people. And to carry the word of God to people is a huge responsibility. And if you fuck it up, you pay through the nose. That's why I am so appalled by the madness which is ruling today on earth by all the fake religions, by all the sects and cults, by all this new age madness where people are preaching some of the most insane things that I have heard in my life. These are the teachers of the law of today. They will be punished the most severely and they don't even realize what they play with. They play with it like imbeciles. And it doesn't burn them now. Sometimes it burns them now. I've heard cases of people who played with these things and whatever. They were so depressed and so that they committed suicide or they had horrible accidents or something. That's not the point. The point is what's happening when you die. Because then you meet with your guardian angel and then you have to account. And you you say, I didn't kill anybody in my life. I didn't hit anybody in my life. I didn't do that. I didn't steal. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I'm such a glorious guy. And then when you see your account that the angel has in his book, your account is way, way, way heavier than that of serial murderers and others. Then hell is coming then the door to hell is wide open. And that uh, for a long time, for a long, long time. And thus, <clears throat> pay attention to this. Because he told to his disciples, you are going to become rabbis like this. You are the future rabbis. See that you don't go in flowing robes and being greeted in marketplaces. Oh, my Lord, oh, noble-born Peter, oh, how are you, noble-born Paul, you know? Like all this nonsense, all this VIP behavior, you know, praying on widows and for the show, making lengthy prayers because you've got nothing else to do or to show. This is a very important lesson, I consider, and especially for those who want to become spiritual teachers, It's a very relevant lesson because you are handling nitroglycerin. You are handling dynamite. And if you mishandle it, the punishment will be horrible. Because yes, you will not have violent karma. You will not have bad financial karma because you didn't kill, you didn't steal, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, and they will say, where? Yeah, then you are going to have the karma of being kept in the darkness and in the untruth because that's what you did. You, you were not doing it right. You were not doing it honestly. 
And if you are not doing it honestly, then hell, for a while at least, hell is the punishment for that. A psychological hell, a mental hell, darkness, no light in the end of the tunnel, despair, hopelessness, everything. The, the torture of the soul, not necessarily the torture of the body. No? Therefore, one has to be very careful because the one who receives a lot is accounted for a lot. Yeah? And thus, uh, those of us who we think we are responsible about this, we try to handle these things very carefully. Now people say, oh, they modified the Bible in the year 350. If they modified the Bible, <laughs> they are all of them heavily in hell right now. But I don't think they modified it too much. Because they were people who had read these words, and they were fanatics. And they knew that if they did the same mistakes as the teachers of the law, they will go to hell. Maybe some of them, many <laughs> people in the church, they were hypocrites. I can accept that. But the council which decided the form, the present form of the Bible, the Council of Nicaea, the first council of the church, it was attended by at least seven major saints from the Christian calendar. Saint Gregory of Nazians, Saint uh, Basil the Great, Saint, um, whatever the name of the third one, seven major of the saints of the calendar, they were there in the council. Either the saints are bogus, or if these people were truly saints, and their lives are quite incredible, if you bother to read the lives of those people, then you will discover that those people would not have accepted any conscious modification of the text of the Bible for any purpose whatsoever because Jesus had warned them. Be careful. No? These people, such men, will be punished most severely. Are there Christian priests and high prelates who forgot this and they don't believe in it and because they can't see it happening, obviously, they say, come on, yeah, yeah, sure, it's just a whip kept above you, it's just the Damocles sword, but it's not true and so on. Yes, they have been. There are people who did ignore in Christianity and in any other religion this word of Jesus. But uh, Jesus has spoken it very, very clearly. As he looked up, so he was in the temple. All these were th events happening in the temple in basically four days, four days from Monday till Thursday. We don't know if this was happening Monday or Wednesday or when it was happening in that week. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. It's donation, the donation box, where everybody puts whatever they can afford. He also saw a poor widow the widows were especially a uh, problematic category. He felt compassion for the widows, maybe because his mother was a widow. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins, like these copper coins which we have here when they give you copper, those little divisions of the Thai bat. 
I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. More than all the others. I remember Jesus has words which are eternal. It's not that he's throwing with words. Sometimes people accuse me and Mukta and other teachers of the school that we use all sorts of dismissive sense of humor and sometimes we talk in funny ways which if you'd analyze them to the millimeter then it's not millimetrically true because you cannot say, I don't know, all the Russians are stupid or all the Russians are drunks or something, you know, it's not true, not all of them, you know, there could be yogis among them and so on, you know, but these are just humoristic statements you know, which, uh, by which we crack a joke or something. But in the case of Jesus, it's not like that. Jesus is speaking with God. He has a historical mission. And he wants to give them a clear value. And he sees, he seizes this example. There's a poor woman who put a few annas, a few whatever, division coin, diminutive coins, pennies, or whatever they were. And then he says, I tell you the truth. Like he uses the prophet language. Truly, 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 truly I speak to you. Like listen, this is truly. Now I'm telling you a mantra. Now I'm telling you the thing. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. More than all the others. It's a very big statement. Because many people were making donations. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Which means, it's also relative. It's relative. It's because the merit is gained by a psychological effort. This woman put her heart and her life and she said, okay, I've got a few pennies. I can as well give them all. What are you going to eat tomorrow? Somebody will give me a piece of bread until tomorrow. I'll find something. Or if I don't get it tomorrow, I fast tomorrow and I'll get something the day after tomorrow. No? Like she really was out on a limb. She simply basically gave pretty much everything. While the other people, they gave Let's say a good example, they gave a tenth of what they had. To give a tenth of what you have is tithing. It's really good. It's really, really good. It's one of the best things that you can do if you find a spiritual person or organization to whom you give one-tenth of what you have. That's really good. That's, I didn't invent that rule. It's a rule which exists since the oldest times. It's the great sages have invented this karma yoga this way of making merit. But this woman gave more than 10% of what she had. She gave pretty much everything. Jesus believed. He felt like she gave. You know, she put the hand in the pocket, took what she had, gave it. It was just two shillings. No? But those two shillings were, subjectively speaking, much more than the 10% of the other generous ones. Because she gave everything. So, this is the beauty of it, a teaching which he gives 
briefly like this, that the offering, uh, the merit, has something got to do with the heart. It's something which is from your heart. It's a subjective thing. And a little bit, we start the next subject, which is much longer. Some of his disciples, we are in chapter 21, uh, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. This was, if you remember, the temple of Solomon. Solomon, who was probably the richest of the Jewish kings of all time, and who was very much devoted still to God because his father had been David. So it was he was the follower, the following generation from David at a time of glory. In the temple of Solomon, he had built it with great wealth. And it was, the temple was, probably today in the world, would be considered very rich. But Jesus said, no, it's like he didn't deny that it's beautiful or something. Unfortunately, here Jesus was getting close to being crucified and he was a bit grumpy. He was a bit in a fighting mood. He was a little bit sad. He was a bit radical. So you don't, sometimes he has outbursts of love and so on, but he is also, you can feel that he is hard between the hammer and the anvil, you know, he is like, he is subjected to a real heart pressure. And he said, Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. This prophecy, Jesus died in the year 33. No, because the world is measured after the years of Jesus. He was in the 34th year of his life. He was born in the very, the year zero is the year of his own birth. And the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, which the Romans did, happened in the year 70. Maybe 77. My, my history is not super accurate, but it's somewhere around the year 70. So it happened about 35 years later after Jesus said this. 35, 40 years later, it did happen. In those days, without television and recorders and so on, 35 years was like ha, 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 two generations far away. It was like in the time of the grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or something. It, it was far away, but still Jesus could see it coming and he says, as for that, for what you see here, he's not happy about it, but he simply is rough. The time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. The Romans, because they wanted to take revenge on the Jews making rebellion, they simply said, what is bringing these guys back to Jerusalem all the time? They have been in Egypt, they have been to Babylon, they have been to this, they always come back here. Why? Because they have the temple. The temple is the core of their religion. And then the Romans being very pragmatic, a pragmatic war machine, you know, they simply said, then destroy the fucking temple. Raise it to the ground. This is exactly what they did with Carthagena in the city of Hannibal. 
Hannibal attacked the Roman Empire and the Romans were so pissed off because Hannibal beat them once and he was very dangerous and made their Ashvini Mudra go very deep. And then they simply said when they reached to the city of Carthage, the city in the North Africa, in today's Tunis, Libya, wherever, they raised it to the ground and they went with the plows and they plowed the land. They turned him into garden land. Like never ever anybody should come here and dare to even build a hut on this place. So much they hated it and they didn't want things to come back. So the Romans had this style and they did the same to Jerusalem, especially to the temple. They simply wiped it out. There was no two stones on top of each other. No, there was not even the basis of a wall. They raised it completely. So Jesus sees this and he says there will be no stone left. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And now Jesus does an amazing thing. He speaks in a double language. Like the yogis from India have some texts which can be understood with three different meanings at the same time and all of them are true at the same time. Jesus speaks and there are two or three simultaneous meanings because he is asked a specific question. When will there be no stone upon stone here? But when you read the book of Revelation written later by John, his disciple, who had visions of the future, he is mentioning that there will be a revival of this Jerusalem issue when the last day will come, when the judgment day will come. And that's what most of the Orthodox Jews believe, that when the temple of Solomon will be rebuilt, there will be a great turmoil, and then the end of the world is coming, the doomsday is coming. So it's always about this. You would be surprised at such a patch of land, you know, it's like, why are people so focused on a fucking patch of land, you know? Why don't they go one kilometer away and build something like Burj Al Khalifa or Burj Al Arab? Or why don't they build the greatest of the great, you know? Just one kilometer, say, okay, now they have a problem because the temple of the Muslims, meanwhile, eight centuries later or something, the Muslims build a mosque. And now the Muslims... Manipuristic and stubborn as they are, they don't want to let go and to make a friendly interreligious gesture and to say, you know what, promise not to demolish our mosque and we give you the compound and around it and together with it we find an architectural solution that you guys can rebuild your fucking temple. And we have a friendly, harmonious solution. The Muslims don't do that. The Jews don't want to hear about any compromise solution. And they are fighting. This is most of the fighting which is happening in the old city. No, It's about Al-Aqsa or whatever the name of that mosque is. The mosque in the old city, the Golden Dome or whatever it's called. Uh, and um, therefore, you know, here Jesus is talking about things which happened in the year 70. But he's also talking about things which will happen in the end of the world. They are at least, because the events are similar. And he manages to express the words which are riding over both of them. Which by synchronicity, by divine clairvoyance, 
by divine synchronicity, they fit to both of them. So Jesus is speaking at the same time about an event which would happen in 35 years after this discourse, 40 years after this discourse, but he is also talking about the second coming. He's talking about the end of the yuga, the end of the cosmic cycle. And he uses such miraculous language which fits to both of them and you cannot put the finger and say, come on man, this could not have happened at that time or will not be able to happen in the future or something. It's both. Some people even said that some of this language was valid around the year 1000 when the crusaders conquered Jerusalem and then the Muslims came and took over Jerusalem and the Jews were a few families, Jewish families were still living in Israel at that time and there was mayhem. If you go and see that movie, Kingdom of Heaven or something, there at some point, you know, Salahuddin or one of these sultans which conquered Jerusalem, he says, I don't know, people get crazy over these stones, you know. One of my ideas, he said, is to raise everything to the ground. To simply raise the whole city to the ground like the Romans did with Carthage, you know, and kind of plow the land. And that nobody should come here again because they, they are all attracted like honeys, like, like bees are attracted by honey or something like this. Why do they keep coming? This shows the synchronicity, the causal importance that there, there is a place. Everybody who knows yoga and goes into Jerusalem, especially in the old city, there you can feel it. That land is not usual land. Because so much, the three, all the three Western religions are hooked on that little piece of land. It would be so easy to just go five kilometers away and to say the new Jerusalem is here. And we, the Jews, we ask a gazillion of dollars for Mr. Rothschild or somebody, and we build a temple which is more rich than whatever any nation in the world could build. We are going to show you the power of the Jewish bankers, you know. We are going to pour in gazillions of dollars and make here something which is visible from the moon, you know. We can make here something which is shining and is made of diamond and gold exclusively and so on. No, it's that particular spot. It's that spot, you know. Like Solomon or David or whoever built it came with some divining rods, came with some, you know, hazelnut sticks. And they found out and they said, there is a good energy here, let's build a temple here. How did that place become so pivotal, so that everything is spinning around it? Now, what is, why is there such a karma? Why is there, no? There is because there is like a collective hypnosis, which shows that either everybody is stone stupid, and they should simply go five kilometers away. You know, the Jews can easily find another place in Israel where they can build a temple of the temples. So they can go on Mount Masada or wherever. They can go in the desert. They can go to make it uh, with the dolphins at the Red Sea, wherever they swim with the dolphins. They could make it in a hundred places. They could make it on Mount Tabor, where Jesus transfigured. No, it has to be that fucking spot. That 100 meters by 100 meters, that's where it has to be. You know? Why so many people have to die? Why there is so many? You know? Obviously, you can see that nothing comes out of nothing. There is there a causal nail 
hammered in that place which simply says everybody is hooked in this particular point. No? It's like, why not change it? Why not decree a new heaven and a new earth? No, then let them have their fucking flying horse mosque or whatever it is, you know. They say that Muhammad came with a flying horse in his dreams and it's like, okay, very good, he came. It's a holy place, you know what, you take it and we are going to call upon God five kilometers from here in another holy place because God is alive and he's coming to us. No, but, but it's not happening that way. Yeah. So Jesus speaks about this and that's why it's at least three historical points where his speech is going. And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. We just were laughing with the guys a month ago or two months ago, looking that there are about ten people who claim they are Jesus. There is one in Siberia who lives with 5,000 people. Guy, He's Jesus. There is one who is fucking nuts in Australia. He is Jesus. You know, he all the time when people come to meet him, he goes and puts a board and he says, I am Jesus, deal with it. You know, like, it's as simple as that for him. And there are about eight others who claim. No? And therefore, no. He simply said, many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. It is for this very reason that I never like to say the time is near. Although I feel that it could be near. But I don't dare to say because it's too much according to the prophecy of Jesus himself. Like he said, it will be used as an argument. People thought that the earth will finish, the Christians thought that it will happen in the year 1000. In the year 1034, a thousand years after Jesus' crucifixion. Then in the year 1666, when the great fire burned down London. Then, then in the year 2000, as you know. Then in the year 2012. God knows what else they are inventing until these round numbers go, and so on. And Jesus tells them, do not follow them. People who say, I am he. And the time is near. Jesus says, it's a word, he says, don't follow them. Basically, he says, when it will happen, it will happen in such a way that nobody will see it coming. And therefore, it will be always too late. Like God is a magician. And when he pulls a rabbit out of the hat, nobody has seen it coming. No, pam, pum, surprise. But I thought we could expect it. So he's warning people, I'm telling you, but you will still not be able to say the time is near. Although I tell you what will happen. <clears throat> when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Have there been revolutions? Many in the last 200 years. Have there been wars? The biggest wars have happened of the mankind happened in the 20th century and they were called world wars. And it's not out of the question that a third world war still can happen. We hope it won't, but it's not completely out of the question that a third world war is impossible, uh, that, that it's not possible. 
And thus, he says, there will come wars and revolutions. Do not be frightened. The new paradigm, uh, a new world order, even if they are negative and demonic, they are some sort of revolutions. Now everybody goes with a mask or whatever. These are revolutions, yeah? Do not be frightened. These things must happen first. First. But the end will not come right away. Hey, it's 60, 70 years, 60 years from the Second World War. 70, 80, whatever. No? It's not coming right away. Not right away. Like there is an extended period where these things are happening. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There is no way of describing to the Israelis of the year zero, more accurately, things like world wars, others. You know, like there were no economical and political concepts at that time in the language of that time to describe. There was like the Romans had conquered the Greeks. And then the Romans had taken over Egypt, and the Romans had taken over Israel, Palestine, whatever. Yes, so nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places. Now, we cannot say that now we have more famine than we had 500 years ago. Probably the contrary. But... We don't know with the climate, with nuclear war, with comets or asteroids hitting the earth. Everything is possible. The book, that book is still open. And that's why earthquakes, I do not claim to believe that the earthquakes have become more bigger or more numerous than a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. Jesus was trying to find images which were simply talking about great disasters. And in Jerusalem, there did happen earthquakes. There would happen an earthquake on that Friday. In that week, on Friday, when they crucified him, there was a big earthquake which broke the Temple of Solomon, broke the Holy of the Holies, symbolically, by synchronicity, showing exactly what had happened. No. So, it was a country prone to earthquakes. Therefore, describing earthquakes is a way of describing, you know, tornadoes, tsunamis, whatever, global warming, God knows what other things, for which there were no words and no concepts at that time. So, he basically says there will be great earthquakes, famines. Please, remember... I don't know if it diminished from 30,000 in the last five years, but five years ago, it was still around 30,000 children and people dying of hunger every day in Africa and select places from Asia and Micronesia, Macronesia, Polynesia, whatever. There are pla- in the places of the world where it happens. It is evaluated. Please study. It's not a joke. that the World Health Organization and others, they still evaluate that almost, maybe they diminished it with 5,000, which would be a great progress. Okay, then we could say today, 25,000 people, thousand people, that's a reasonably large stadium of football full of people, most of them children, they died today of hunger. 
That's why George Oshava said, it's a pity, it's a sin to throw food to the garbage. If you throw food to the garbage, you are a spoiled animal because you consume too much food, which you have so much of that you even throw it to the garbage. And meanwhile, 25,000 people have died of hunger today and 25,000 tomorrow. And every day of this year, 25,000 like this. These are staggering numbers. We're not saying that 300 people die of hunger every day. We're talking about tens of thousands. So when you say famine, maybe it's a subjective thing that it's highlighted because 100 years ago people didn't know these numbers. There were no statistics and control. Now we know. And it's shameful. It's shameful. No? Like, there are people who... I've seen a video with a guy that made himself a bathtub, which is on rails, like in Indiana Jones. It goes like a little mine train on rails. Like, you know, and he can push a lever, and he is in the bathtub in the water up till here, and he is pushed on his balcony to see the sight. You, know? you have a rolling bathtub with a button, and 25,000 children have died, and you do not consider that you could have saved the life of one, the life of one of them. The food for a child for a month costs like, I don't know, $15 or something. There are religious organizations which do it without any extra costs. They do it exactly penny for penny. You could save the life of a child by donating $12 per month and you are making yourself a bathtub which takes to your balcony, to your lodge, you know. And you don't feel guilty that you live in such a spoiled luxury, you know, about it. This is the lack of conscience. This is the lack of awareness. So, famine, at least we are being told about the fact that there is famine. Whoever has ears to hear, they can hear. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. Where pestilence means coronavirus as well. It means epidemics and diseases. Pestilences can also mean poisoning, pollution, like water being poisoned, too much chemicals in the agriculture like fertilizers and herbicides and other things, you know. So, this image applies to today as well as it has applied to those days. And fearful events and great signs from heaven. Again, people can see them, don't see them. You know, Virgin Mary appeared in Fatima 100 years ago and she said some things out of which the Catholic Church doesn't want to tell us what is the third thing which she said. The number one and number two she said, and they were true predictions. And then she said the third thing which is still kept secret. It's Virgin Mary for God's sake. And she spoke to the humanity. And the Catholic Church doesn't tell us. It is assumed because it says something bad about the Catholic Church. No? And they, it's PR. Their PR department cannot accept to make that on public. So, great signs from, seven, from heaven, yeah, they do happen now and then, and you don't know what it means, because even a comet falling on the earth is a great sign from heaven, literally speaking. 
you know. So in this way, the language which Jesus uses is so marvelous because it applies to a lot of things. He, he answers without exactly answering. And then he says, don't believe the people who tell you it's coming, I am him, and stuff like that. Because the prophecies are meant to be ambiguous up till a certain point. But before, I, I think the one who made the most unambiguous prophecy, or one, was uh, Nostradamus. Even the prophecies of Nostradamus, they found out that they were right after they happened. It's always impossible to read, but after they happen, oh yeah, 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 look, it was written by Nostradamus. You know, like, why didn't you tell us 10 years before with clear evidence? It's like this. This is the clairvoyance thing that it's not allowed to give you things on a silver tray. No, you have to go through the events because there is a karma, there is a law of necessity. So a few minutes and I finish. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. So basically he says, there will, was there persecution of the Jews in that time by the Romans? Yes. Of the Christians, who are also most of them Jews, but Jews converted to Jesus' uh, stuff, yes. Of other and other religious minorities, yes. After the war in Syria, three years ago, the United Nations published a report on the religious persecution in the last 50 years on planet Earth. And the most persecuted religious denomination on the face of the planet Earth are the Christians. It's still the Christian church. Like in all that war in Syria, the millions of people that died were Christian, most of them. There were a few Muslims and a few Yazidis and a few others, but they were mostly Christians. Nobody says that in CNN, that there is a problem in, in Syria and the problem is that they are killing Christians. Because CNN is not a pro-Christian broadcasting editor. On the contrary, the owners of CNN are probably severely anti-Christian. No? And they don't say it. But if you study the science of it, you will see that it happens. So Jesus is in the middle of making predictions which are very... Forked tongue, you know, he speaks about two or three things at the same time. He walks on water, basically. He manages to speak with such a language, he keeps a whole speech, and he speaks about two or three things at the same time. Riding on two or three horses at the same time. Only Jesus, or somebody endowed with that kind of divine inspiration, could have done that. No? Saying without saying too much. Saying, so you can see it's, it's been said, and yet like, oh gosh, why didn't I think about it before? No? It's always there. I think it's enough for tonight. It's been long enough. Thank you all for joining, and we will continue with this prophecy of Jesus, which is addressing several events simultaneously in a miraculous way. Thank you all. For